I remember walking out of the first screening and the room was utterly quiet. Nobody clapped. Nobody did anything. And I thought, oh, my God, because, you know, you screen the movie to like 300 people and employees. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm fired. I'm totally fired. And I walked into the bathroom and there were women in there crying from the movie. And I was like, oh, I'm not getting fired. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Red Carpet Rookies. My name is Mike Battle, a film production junior working for studios in London. Each episode, I bring you advice and stories from film, TV and content professionals to help demystify and democratize the industries for juniors and fans alike. Thanks for joining me. Let's get started. Today's guest is Academy Award nominated screenwriter and producer Meg LaFauve. After getting her start in production working for Jodie Foster, Meg set her goal on screenwriting and boy did she accomplish it. Writing Pixar's universally lauded Inside Out and The Good Dinosaur, Captain Marvel and the eagerly anticipated My Father's Dragon, Meg is a Hollywood go-to for storytelling. If she wasn't busy enough, she spends her free time giving back to future screenwriters through her fantastic podcast, The Screenwriting Life, alongside fellow Pixar alumni, Laurie and McKenna, which everybody should absolutely check out for industry advice and mentorship. It's also the reason that Meg has the best guest audio we've ever had on Red Carpet Rookies. She joins us now from LA. Welcome, Meg. How are you doing? Thank you. Thanks for having me. So you were born and bred in Ohio. You're a long way from the Hollywood Hills there. I'd love to hear about growing up there and perhaps if your parents' careers had an effect on what you ended up doing. Um, Oh, I think they did. I grew up in Ohio, like you said, a little town called Warren, which is about an hour south of Cleveland, right on the Pennsylvania border. When I took my husband back before we were married... You know, literally, I took him from the little town square with the band gazebo out to some Amish ox roast that was happening. I mean, it was it was the idyllic place to grow up as a child. Um, But I'm I felt lucky also that then my father, who worked for General Motors, we moved a lot um, and we started moving when I was 16. So then I started to get a broader experience Um, so I, I actually went to three different high schools in three different States. We started to move so much. So I really had to learn how to meet people. And, um, I ended up learning the skill of how to be friends with a lot of different people because I never kind of wanted to get into one group, um, and limit myself that way. Um, so I learned that that moving taught me a lot. I mean, at the time, of course I hated it. I thought my was the worst. I thought my life was over. Um, but of course then I used it when I grew up and wrote inside out and understood what it felt like to be upended and, uh, be the new girl at school. Um, my parents' careers for sure influenced me in that my mother was an artist. She was a painter and my father was an engineer. So I think I have both parts of my brain that now apply to storytelling, Uh, the art and being an artist and um, the ups and downs of that, the ins and outs of it, the business meeting art, all of which my mother went through. She also was a teacher, an art teacher. And I think I take that to my podcasts and I did uh, teach at UCLA and AFI. Um, We come from a long line of teachers. Um, And then my father's engineer brain, it's really interesting. I sometimes feel like I'm engineering stories if that makes sense. Like I really love story math. (laughs) I love how do you make this work? And often I talk about the engine of a story. What are the components of the engine? Um, And seeing patterns. 
I think all of that comes into my writing. I try not to let that come in until after what I call the barf draft, the inspirational artistic draft. I don't think you can create or should create from it because then it gets too mechanical. Um, uh, but I, so I try to be my mother uh, for inspiration and the imagination and the artistry, and then bring my dad in as the kind of dad brain in as the kind of the engineer of the story. And how do we develop this? How do we make it better? How do we push ourselves? So both of those things I use every day. The best of both, I guess. Was there anywhere along the way when you were bobbing from those schools one to the next that you realized you were an artist of sorts and you wanted to be a writer? I started writing very, very young. Like literally I have stories that I wrote that the letters are, you know, inches tall and slanting to the right. Um, uh, so I always wanted to be a writer. The big, the bigger issue for me was I was afraid. I was so fearful of, um, it being wrong and not being right. Um, not being picked or chosen. I remember I sent a story into, a teenage girls magazine at the time. And I didn't get picked to be put in. And I said, okay, well, that's it. That's the verdict. I'm not a writer or not really understanding that. No, that means you are a writer. <laughs> Every writer has many, many uh, rejections and things that don't work out. It wasn't the right widget for that particular magazine, but I didn't really understand any of that. I did go to Syracuse university for writing for screenwriting in which I um, was a dual major in English and in uh, English lit and writing and had a great mentor there, Sharon Hollenbeck, who started to teach me those ins and outs and the artistry of it uh, that I now try to bring to my podcast so that people can understand it because um, I really didn't. But I still was too, I was still chicken. I still came out to Hollywood and ended up going in to be an executive and a producer, really moving for, towards that father brain, right? Really moving towards being the engineer and helping other people with their stories versus kind of standing in the spotlight myself, standing in that harsh light of, uh, of, of really showing yourself, which is what the artist has to, had to do. And I just wasn't brave enough to do it um, until much later in my life. You're talking there about wanting to be a writer and obviously moving out to LA, doing the big jump. When you were younger, you've mentioned living in a smaller town and such. Did you feel maybe different to your peers in that sense? Um, well, I was different from my peers in that my parents um, bought a piece of land in the woods and my father had been stationed in Japan for many years. They had my three brothers and sisters there and they so loved it that they built a Japanese house in the woods. I grew up in a Japanese house with shoji doors and green shag carpet because it was still the 70s. Um, so I was always slightly <laughs> different. You know, my mother was an art teacher. She would come and, and, and teach art. So I, but I, but my parents never let us feel different in terms of, we still had to understand that people are people and no people are better than other people. And, um, so it, it wasn't kind of a, oh, I, I feel different in a bad way. It was a good way. It was that my mother was driving us to to Cleveland to go to museums and ballets. And so artistry was always a big part of my life, but in a very normal way. I didn't really understand that everybody didn't have so much original art in their house that it had to be rotated with the seasons because my mother just had so much of it. I just, isn't that everybody? Isn't everybody's house like that? Um, so no, I, I was, uh, and, and in terms of my own artistry, um, no, I, if anything, like I said, I felt um, that I wasn't good enough most of the time. So if you felt you weren't good enough, I know that 
at a later date, you set a beacon, as you call it, for working for Pixar. Did that come from a more confident stance after maybe your later years? Or was that still something that you had when you were young? Uh, well, I've always been a bit of a person, you know, what my father called a dog with a bone. Like if I decided something and I decided I wanted something, the, you know, the best thing you could do is tell me no, because I'd be like, really? I can't, I can't do that. It's not possible. There's no way that's possible. But like, what if it was, what if we could do it? How would we do it? Like what I, I just, I just have that brain, which I guess again, is the engineering brain. Like really it can't work. This engine can't work. Really? What if we took it all apart and rebuilt the whole thing and invented a new piece? So I definitely have been, was born with that. Um, I think I was born super empathetic when I was uh, in college, my teacher, Sharon Hollenbeck, sat me down and talked about the dangers of it, that it was creating myself as a writer to be so empathetic, but also I needed to learn boundaries um, so that I didn't give myself away um, and, and constantly live out in other people uh, and their lives, which was a really good piece of advice. Um, she, I remember her saying, or you're going to have a very painful life. And I was like, oh, my God. Um, so I think that I... Um, I have always been that dog with a bone person, but no, in terms of the beacon and being brave enough to step out and do it, it really came down to my husband. One, I was working for Jody. I'd been working for Jody for 10 years. Our deal was coming up again to be renewed at Paramount. And my husband sat me down and said, you know, you complain a lot about not writing and not being the writer. And um, if you do it again, I have to tell you, it's like shit or get off the pot. Like, are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? Because if you're not going to do it, you can't complain about it ever again, like ever. And of course, at the time I was like, oh my God, he doesn't love me. <laughs> <laughs> but of course it was a great act of love, right? It was an incredible act of love. I did it. I quit. I was like, you know, I think I was also realizing, oh my gosh, like, do I want to be 65 and wonder what if? What if I actually had been brave enough? If, if fear is the only thing stopping you, and I was lucky because, of, like I said, I was married. I had a husband who was also earning money. So I had the ability economically to step off that cliff and to try it. So the, really, then the only excuse I have is that I'm too afraid. And that that isn't a good enough excuse to not do something in your life. So I, um, I, can't, I can't let that stop you. So I quit which was crazy. And once I quit and I was in that chop, right, where people like, what are you doing now? You're writing? What? Like, you know, suddenly you go from, I work for Jodie Foster to zero, right? I had babies. I did all kinds of things to avoid writing. But um, I think I, after I had the babies, I really decided I needed that beacon to get me up every day and to be moving towards something because I hadn't for 10 years really made my own schedule. If you think about it, you have to go into an office and you have meetings and you have constant kind of things to keep you chugging along. But as a writer or an artist, that has to be completely self-created. And I wasn't good at it. I am not good at that. So I set this beacon. I decided, well, what is the most amazing and yet frightening thing I could imagine. And that was sitting in the, in the brain trust room at Pixar and having that level of storyteller look at my work and give me notes. Um, it's truly terrifying. 
<laughs> you know, it's so great, right? How exciting to have the Andrew Stanton's brain looking at your work that it's so there's nothing better. And yet there's nothing more terrifying. Um, so I said that as, as my beacon on the water and it's not like, you know, it's not like in the movies and then ABC, you get it. It's like A, Z, D, F, G. It's, it, you go all over the place. Um, but I was gathering tools. I was gathering tools that I didn't even realize I was going to need when I got to Pixar, working with my friend who is a writer, but also an actor. And he taught me to play and to let go of that engineered brain. And part of the artistry is to have fun. So he taught me to do that. So I, I gathered lots of pieces so that the day that Pixar called, I was ready um, relatively as much as you can be, <laughs> as much as you can be um, to go into that level, to that level of, uh, of artistry. How did it feel when they finally did call, given that you'd put that beacon in the distance and then finally they're ringing you. <laughs> I literally can remember vividly exactly where I was. I was waiting for my sister who was flying in from Chicago, my sister Beth, and I was waiting at LAX. You have to wait downstairs and they all come down the escalator and out the doors. And I was standing there watching all these people get off planes and my phone rang and I looked at it and the name is the head of development at Pixar. And I was like, huh? And I answered it and she's like, hey, Pete read your script and he's like, you got to come up and he's got the this film and he'd really love to come up and meet you to possibly write on it. And you're literally, I was like in a sea of people walking by me going, uh-huh, uh-huh, sure. That sounds good. And I just want to scream. I just want to <laughs> scream with delight. I mean, I don't have the job yet or anything, but just, I have the chance. I have the chance at the job. Um, and my sister came off the plane and I just started screaming and she was like, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was just a really a highlight of my life. I'd say that call. And then when I got a letter that I, this is many years earlier when I was trying to become a writer and I was in the middle of that, I'd left my job and trying to, um, really now work professionally. And I got a letter from Hedgebrook, which is a writer's retreat for women only up in Washington on a, on a little island called Woodby Island. And you had to apply and send your writing. And it was my first kind of step out as a writer, like showing my writing to people. Back to that girl who gave that story to that teenage magazine. I did it again now all these years later. And um, I, when I got the letter that I was accepted to come, I felt like, oh my God, I am. I am a writer. Um so there's those moments in your life that are the are the lights, right? The day I got my WGA card, I took a picture and sent it to every friend I had. Um, and you hold on to those because there's also the days as any artist where you're like, oh my God, none of this works. I, you know, fraud syndrome, uh, you know, the, you know, it, part of artistry is going into the chop, going into the burning lava of, of your who you are and, and what you have to say. And that it's hard. That's part of the artistry. So there's always the ups and downs of it. And I, I meet young people who are very much like I was who think, well, it's choppy and hard and burns and I feel like a fraud. So therefore I'm not a writer. And I just laugh and I'm like, no, therefore you are a writer. <laughs> like everybody, everybody, even the geniuses at Pixar have setbacks, have things that don't work, have those kind of dark nights where they're like, holy crap, that is the the work. That is the work. It's not some sign from the universe that you're off track. It actually means, no, you're in the work, you're in process. You've mentioned the call, the moment that Pete rang you up. Do you remember 
the questions. I'm interested to know the sort of questions he would ask you when he was first judging you for your script. I got to fly up to Pixar and sit down and have lunch with him. And, you know, he he was really because we were going to write together. Right. So this is a very different kind of interview. Pete is a writer. He, this is very much his film. I was there to help him express his vision and the tools that I could bring. A lot of that kind of structure engineer brain that I was going to bring, but also myself. He needs to know who I am. I'm going to, every writer, you put yourself in every movie, even when you're working for a genius director like Pete Doctor, your job is to bring yourself uh, to him to, um, to put into the work. So, you know, it was a little bit of get to know you and then how do I work with directors? And because I had been an executive and I'd worked with many, many directors as an, uh, as an executive, um, I kind of had that view of it very much, which is this is your film and I'm here to help you um, get there, get, get that vision out of your head and into something that, um, into a story Um uh, and then he said, OK, uh, let's go upstairs and take a look. And I, he took me upstairs to the story room and started showing me the drawings and the notes and where they were with the story. And I just started very casually spitballing with him in terms of, well, which is, you know, at this point, it's asking a lot of questions. What do you mean by this? And how would that work? And this because I'm asking to dig in. I'm digging in, digging in and then a couple of spitball ideas. Um, so it's a very it was a very active quote unquote interview. But again, it had to be because I'm going to be writing with him and again, doing his piece. So, um, and you know, <laughs> of course, every week I'm there, I think I'm getting fired, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that I'm special that way either. The bar is very high at Pixar. Um, you know, you walk in every morning past a case of Academy Awards um, and everybody's doing their very, very best. Every artist in that building is bringing everything they have, all of their originality, all of their personal life and how they, you know, everybody in the building is an artist and doing artistry um, from the producers to the actual physical artists. So you do feel a camaraderie in that, but everybody's kind of standing in the heat of it uh, too, which is great. It's amazing. It's an amazing uh, uh, special experience to, to have. You've touched on it briefly before. Uh, ever since I read Creativity Inc., which for the listeners is a book by Ed Catmull, who co-founded Pixar, he talks about the brain trust. And you touched on it a little bit there. I'd love to hear about what it's really like in the room and your ex first experiences. Is it radical candor, as they say? <laughs> well, it has to be, right? On one hand, it has to be radical candor because that's what you're there for. You're there. But it's that sounds so harsh. That sounds like a whipping. It's not at all that. Um it's not at all, uh, not at Pixar. It is not that. It, you know, Pixar is a very, very special place in that, because again, I've done a lot, I've done live action and done other things. What's very special about Pixar is that truly in that brain trust room, the only thing going on, the only motive that anybody at that table has, no matter how big and famous they are, is, is this the best story? How can we help you get to your best story? Now, sometimes that is radical candor. The best way to help you get to your story is to be very candid about what, what they didn't get. They didn't get it, right? And is that hard to sit there and be and receive that? Sure, of course. You're like, oh my God, they didn't get it, right? Um, that's hard, um, but you need to know that. You, you absolutely need to know what your audience, be they uh, the geniuses at the brain trust or just a, the regular Joe audience, they didn't get it. So then, but the best part to me was, that was the hard part. That was always the fire part. Um, but then always you would get the best part. 
which was, okay, let's spitball some solutions. What could it be? It could be this, it could be that. And wow, to watch them start throwing ideas and you know, how their brains work, you know, I still will be in any meeting I can with Andrew Stanton just to listen to his brain work and where it goes um, as, a, as a master storyteller. Um, so that is the very best part uh, of, of those brain trusts, you know, is watching them start to originate and manifest. And again, it's just ideas on the table, which are more, you don't have to do quote unquote, those ideas. It's really up to the director you know, you're, you're going to go away and take some time off. And then the director is going to say, this is what I heard. This is what touched me. This is what I want to do. This is the ideas I liked. And then you're going to reboot the whole thing. And that's the other thing. A lot of people, I think young writers think that they're going to write a script. Oh, look, it's 115 pages there. I wrote a script. I'm actually getting some people who like it. So when I get notes, I just go back into my document and I noodle around in it, right? You put a Band-Aid here, you change that line of dialogue here. I'll change this scene here in the first act and this, but that is not at all what we did at Pixar. And I think one of the reasons their movies are so good is you know, each time it's kind of a teardown. You 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 say, okay, that didn't work. You have to go back to the engine, the inspiration, the thing that's generating this. Uh, and we would outline again. We would card all over again. I'd open a brand new blank document and I'd rewrite that whole thing. But that gives you kind of, as scary as that is, it gives you a kind of freedom too, right? Because you have to recreate this based on all the notes that you got. Um, and you have to be brave and realize it will come. The new ideas will come. Um, but I think that is also one of the reasons it was such an amazing experience at Pixar, uh, because you were doing that level of deep work. And listen, there are so many people throwing in good ideas all the time. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's 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 like having the chorus of 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 creativity in your head as people think, oh, it could be this, it could be that. She could do this. Have you know when I was a when I was a 11 year old girl, this, and you're like, oh my God, that's a great story. I'm putting that in. Um, so, you know, I mean I, in animation, as a writer, you're off, you're working with the storyboard artists. So they are storytellers in, uh, of themselves. So they're bringing all of their storytelling chops to you, right? So you've gone through a lot of machinations and revisions. Um, before you even get to that brain trust. Given the complexity of Inside Out, and I know it went through lots of iterations throughout, was there one moment in one of the brain trust meetings where somebody's note, whether it's yours or anyone else's, turned to the story on a dime? On Inside Out, it was never that dramatic. I remember walking out of the first screening and the room was utterly quiet. Nobody clapped, nobody did anything. And I thought, oh my God. Because, you know, you screen the movie to like 300 people and employees. And I thought, oh my God, I'm fired. I'm totally fired. Uh, and I went into the bathroom because I had to go up to the brain trust, but I needed to get myself together before I went into the brain trust and got fired, which is what I'm sure going to happen, uh, which wouldn't happen, of course, but your fears are driving. And I walked into the bathroom and there were women in there crying from the movie. And I was like, oh, I'm not getting fired. <laughs> Everybody didn't clap or anything because they were too emotional. Because at that point, at early in the movie, the movie ended right at the parents' hug at the end. Um, it didn't kind of bring you back up with all the fun. So um, that's when I thought, oh, oh, this is working. This is working. Um, we got them. So I thought that was, that was one moment of my own kind of like, okay, this is good. Um, I'd say The Good Dinosaur went through huge shifts in those brain trusts. Um, you know, even going from, you know, the whole plot uh, shift in one offsite where 
by the end of the offsite, he was going to get lost in the woods and have to come back uh, and find home, which was not when we went into that offsite what the plot of the movie was. So um, they can be they can be huge, right? When you're really digging in and people are really starting to throw at a core level, um, or they can be making what you have work in a better way. One of the questions I'm really interested to know is: Did you study any psychology literature when you were working on Inside Out? Well, Pete Doctor did a tremendous amount um, before I came on the project. He did years of study um, on the emotions. When I came on, he had picked the five emotions um, and had a lot of places he wanted to go um, in the mind. I brought what I brought it per, to it personally was I had put my children in a preschool that was called an attachment preschool, meaning they were teaching emotional intelligence in preschool. So this preschool's uh, per, uh, idea is that your kid's going to have their whole lifetime to learn ABC one, two, three. But what they really, their brains are really doing at preschool level is developing emotional intelligence. So that's what we're going to help them do. And then once they have emotional intelligence, it's much easier to learn your ABCs and one, two, threes and to exist in the world. And that it was a profound experience for me um, because they taught you exactly what sadness does in the movie after Bing Bong's uh, uh, wagon gets thrown in the dump. So if you see your kid and, and he's been building a block structure and another kid comes up and kicks it over and your kid gets angry and starts th you know, throwing blocks and getting mad, you don't walk over and say, let me fix it. You can build another one. It's not that bad because that's all denying the emotional experience of that child in that moment, right? Instead, you sit down next to them and you sit and you start to reflect back what emotion they're feeling so that they can start to learn what is this raging feeling in my body? They're only like, you know, three or four years old. And you say, my God, you're really angry. My gosh, you're really angry. Yes, I'm angry. Why are you angry? I'm angry because he just, I worked all day on this block structure. And you have to have empathy because if you were writing a paper and on your computer and the whole thing got, you know, erased, you would be pretty mad just because you don't care about a block structure. He cares about the block structure. And so you say, and then once you reflect the anger, now here comes the next emotion behind it. And the tears are coming. And you say, now you're sad. You're really sad. Yes, he's sad. It is sad. It is sad to lose your block structure. It is really sad. It's gone. And then they quickly, you wouldn't imagine how quickly they, it passes through and they go, okay. And they stand up and they run around and they're totally fine. Right? Versus don't feel that way. I, as a parent, am uncomfortable that you're sad. I feel like I have to fix it. No, that is not the, the philosophy is let them have their emotions. So I brought all of that in with me in terms of that scene with sadness, but all of it in terms of, you know, I remember saying to Pete, you know, if the idea is that joy needs to accept Riley's sadness as a way to connect to people, then people are going to have to be sad in this movie. Like you can't not do it in the movie. You have to be brave enough to say you can be sad in the movie and it's going to be okay. Um, so it was bringing all of that, uh, I think, is what I brought. But again, Pete had done all of his deep, deep research. Given that you had such an education in depth from Pixar, did you try and bring that kind of depth when you were doing on something radically different to take a gear shift here on something like uh, Captain Marvel? 
Yeah, I mean, Captain Marvel, I was uh, I did with Nicole Perlman, who, you know, is the best part of doing Captain Marvel is getting to meet and work with her. Um, and we were in the story part of of creating Captain Marvel, where, you you know, we've read all of the all of the comics and are bringing in ideas of what the story could be. What is the story of the movie? And, um, you know, at that, at that point, you, you always are bringing what you know about humanity to any project as an artist or yourself. What do you know about humanity? You know about yourself. Um, and I just, I try to, when you're at that beginning, beginning place, I try to go towards what I'm curious about. I try to go towards my questions. So I had read an article about girls learning to code and that they quit. And I thought, what, what, why are we quitting? Why are girls quitting more than boys? <laughs> and I, I, this is the question I had. Um, so I, I had that deep question and I took it to Nicole and we thought about it and, and it was about failure and that girls aren't taught to fail. We're taught to be perfect. We're taught to service everybody else, but we're not taught to fail. Did you feel a duty given that Captain Marvel, I believe was the first female superhero from the universe? Did you have a, did you feel a duty to all of those millions of young girls who want to be superheroes? No, of course. Of course. We had lots of conversations about it and, um, we felt a duty to represent women. Um, but I will be honest at a certain point, we also had to forget it because you can get trapped in it. It can become its own box because no woman can be represent every woman. Right. And ultimately we're writing a story about a human being. So while she ha- she is an, a, a female human and, will, and should be specific and express herself as a female and our experiences as a female, ultimately for me, you have to, we are, in terms of that origination, it was like as a human being, um, which is ironic because she's a superhero, but really, <laughs> that's what we care. That's what we also care about. Um, it, you know, what, what is her story and why, do, why would we love her and care about her story and what does she want and all, all the basic questions you need to ask. Speaking of younger girls, but more younger people generally, you've obviously started the screenwriting life to give back to artists and give back to other screenwriters who can learn from people like yourself. What would be your elevator pitch to a budding screenwriter? Really, the, the, the elevator pitch is everybody doubts, everybody has fears, uh, they don't go away, but they get um, they start to feed the creativity and the artistry instead of block it. Um, on most days, some days they still block. Um, so really it's just about doing it and that the muses will start to come more and more once you make a commitment to sit down every day and write, even if it's just a half an hour and you have to learn your craft. Uh, I, you know, you have to read scripts on the page of the, of the masters who've come before you watch the movies in the genre you're writing or whatever you love because there are tools and craft that you have to layer up on. You have to get a toolbox full of craft. And that just takes time. That just takes writing scripts and many, many versions of them to learn it. You can take out, you can listen to me here. You can go and get great teachers. You can go to seminars. I suggest all of those things. But ultimately, that is not the part of your brain that's writing. The part of your brain that writing has no access to any of that. It is just a dreamer. It's dreaming it up out of the unconscious and it needs time to do its work. It needs time to work on the page for it to come up. And that is the scary part. That's what I call the lava because you don't know what's going to come up. You can decide that you want the story to go left. And if it goes right, it goes right because it had its own, that part of you has its own 
story it wants to tell. And that's when you have to be brave and let it go that way. Um, so it's about bravery. It's about fun and curiosity. Um, and it's about doing it. It is about doing it. I, I believe I'm the writer I am because of the choices I made. And so I don't regret any of my choices and all I learned from working as a producer and all I learned from Jodie Foster and all the people I worked with. But I have less time to be a writer. I will tell less stories. You only have so many stories that you can tell in a lifetime. And I have less of them because I waited. I waited such a long time. Um, so don't wait, jump in, learn the craft, learn the skills, get in there, learn it so that then you can move into the artistry part. I've done a little bit of writing myself and I'm in some of those communities online. And one of the things that seems to come through the most, and this is quite a specific point, I feel like you'll probably roll your eyes as probably lots of screenwriters <laughs> do. What's your opinion on the, the agent manager question? And more specifically in a global world, if you don't live in Hollywood? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the best thing for today is that you don't have to live in Hollywood as much as you used to, honestly, because things are so digital and mobile. And um, of course, it's easier if you're here, I, I, I would think. But um, just because you're in the soup and you're meeting people everywhere, um, there's more of your of your of your crew here. You're, but um, managers and agents, um, you know, they, you need them. I'm not going to say you don't need them in terms of finding you work and getting work, doing the deal. But I think if the goal is get an agent, your scripts reflect that. I think they become much more mechanical and you're kind of writing from your head instead of your gut. You're kind of writing from what you think people will want versus what you want. You're kind of writing from the should versus just the organic, like I said, lava of who you are, right? So, um, I think it's better to write and be brave and even be different. Um, again, using the craft, using the skill set and the tools to show that difference and showcase it. Um, I just was reading that Fleabag was a one-woman one show first, right? That was her process of getting to that authentic self, that authentic thing that she wanted to talk about was I'm going to do a one woman show and then I will write it into a screenplay, et cetera. So however you can get there, get there. But that's the work. And I believe in my heart that if you're doing that work and it's a lot of work, right? It's not a hobby. It's a job. It's a profession. It's a process. If you are truly doing that, we will find you. Because people will start to pass it around. People will be like, oh my gosh, have you read this? Everybody in this town wants to be the next person to find that great writer, right? They want to get the chip to send it to their friend who's an executive and be like, oh my God, look who I found, right? <laughs> so it, it does happen. It does happen. And great writing is found. I literally uh, had a, a mentee that I thought, was a, she's a really good writer. She's a really good writer. I have no problem sending her script to people to say, you've got to, you've got to read this, right? So that's, that's not because she got to be my mentee. That's because she writes a lot and she writes every day and she's digging down into herself, and that's why she's a great writer. And that's why she's going to be found by the agent and the manager. So I would just reverse it. I would right now, if you say I need an agent and a manager, you're putting the center of yourself outside yourself. And that's very tricky. I don't know how you get that. Put it back in yourself 
And if you say to me, well, I've, I've written 10 scripts and I still can't get the agent and manager, I'd probably guess you're in pattern somewhere in those 10 scripts. You're, you're not breaking through that blind spot. Not really. You're, you, you, and how do you find the blind spot? Well, you, maybe you're getting a note in all those 10 scripts and you're really not taking the note. Possibly, maybe. Um, we could talk about it. Come on, to my, come, come on to my Facebook page on the Screenwriting Life and we'll talk about it if that's what's happening. I love to figure that stuff out, by the way. Uh, so, because like I said, I'm a story junkie. You can tell. And on that fantastic answer, I'm going to move to our final questionnaire that I do on Red Carpet Rookies with everybody, which is my own ode to In the Actors Studio in my own way. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so just say whatever comes into your head. Number one, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Ever been given is super hard. I'm not going to do ever been given because I'm sure. I remember working with Pete Doctor one day. I had a hard day and we walked out of the meeting and he said, I saw you sink. I saw you sink at the table and I, you got to stay in. I need you to stay in. And I thought that is that is the only advice to stay in. Um, I'd say, and the other thing I heard, whether it's true or not, I don't know. There's a Buddhist saying that says busyness is a form of laziness. And I, I try to remember that every day. You've got to, you've got to do the harder work that is not busy sometimes of, of self-knowledge and self-actualization. Number two, do you have a favorite film? And if our listeners were to watch one piece of your work tonight, what should they watch? I always have a new favorite film. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I love The Crown, uh, the way that it's about a marriage and about and siblings and family in such an extreme big way and, and such an intimate way. Um, I'm watching Better Things right now, which I love. Um, you know, when I'm working on a script, I watch a lot of baking shows <laughs> because they have an end product. Uh, you know, when you're in this thing and it feels like, oh, my God, I don't know how to finish and get this. Um, and, you know, in terms of my favorite films, um, I'd say Blue, Kozlowski's uh, Blue and ratatouille come to mind but again i'll change it tomorrow but those are the two that come to mind um in terms of my own work of course inside out it, it seems to really reach people and have big impact on them so i hope people will watch it but i also want to say the good dinosaur i think it got lost in the shuffle there they released two movies in the same year and i think there are beautiful gorgeous amazing moments that that team of that crew of that movie brought in and so i would love for people to see it and also incredibly funny. The bit with the triceratops is amazing. <laughs> Number three, what gives you a reason to get out of bed and write every day? You know, if you don't, if I don't write, those characters will never exist. They will never get a chance to tell their story. And um, I feel a, a sacred responsibility to do that. And my other reason is panic, just pure <laughs> panic. Number four, which job in the industry would you do if you weren't doing yours? Now, I know you were a producer before. What would you choose now? Um, I probably uh, would be an editor. Again, they're the last rewrite, but I, you know, as a person, especially right now, who's manifesting from the blank page, it's just like, oh my God, I could be an editor and it could all be there right in front of me. And I just have to put the pieces together, which I know to all the editors out there, that is not all it is and that it has, its, <laughs> it is its own art, but I, I'd love to try editing. This is a big one. And uh, I, I apologize for it in advance. If there's one person you could work with living or dead, who would you choose? A dead person I'd love to work with is Sidney Pollack. Uh, and alive, I, well, Meryl Streep. I, I, maybe it's even cliche to say, but it's just the truth. Meryl Streep, uh, Nicole Kidman, I would love to work for some of those amazing actresses of our, of our time. And I know, okay, my last, I do want to say for fun, I'd love to work with The Rock. 
I think that would be super fun. Who wouldn't? Or hey, how about Lin-Manuel Miranda? Let's work with Lin-Manuel Miranda. I was on Mary Poppins, actually, and oh. uh, he used to dance around in the street. It was fantastic. Oh, my God. I'm so jealous. Number six, what is a book that everyone should read? I would say a book that I give out to everybody I know is Cheryl Strayed's book, Tiny Beautiful Things, uh, her Dear Sugar book, which is truly one of the most profound, amazing books I've ever read. I'm currently reading, I just finished Nothing to See Here, which is amazing. Just the voice is, if you want to know what a voice is in writing, read Nothing to See Here. And I also am finishing up Hilary Mantle's series on uh, on Cromwell, which is, again, the writing, it's like chocolate mousse. You just have to read. I can only read like a couple of pages because it's so beautifully written that I just need to savor it. I love your passion. And finally, if you won an Oscar, who would you thank? Well, uh, I would, of course, thank my husband, Joe, and my kids, Aiden and Julian, because without them, I would not be anywhere near where I am. They are my inspiration and my support. And you've always got to thank the crew of whatever you got nominated for. That you, no, Nobody in Hollywood does it alone. I mean, that is an understatement, especially for the writer. But honestly, I would also... I. I have a personal crew, I would call them, who, you know, my support team friends who've been around me since I first came to LA before I was even working with Jody and who helped me in that transition. Um, and they are really so, so important to who I am. And they're still there with me. You know, I literally just this morning was texting with two of them because this scene is not working. And what if the whole script <laughs> doesn't work? What if this doesn't work? And they were sending back funny things to make me laugh and perspectives and maybe go sit in the closet and see if you feel better. I mean, it was just, you know, it is um, what Lorian and I share on our podcast, right? That camaraderie of not being alone. I think you need it as an artist. Um, you are alone in your artistry. That is a fact. It is you're bringing up your own humanity and authenticity, but you need to put your crew around you, even if it's just one person, two people who believe in you. And, um, and, and that it's just essential to me. It's essential. A lovely answer. And that brings us to the end of our time. Thank you so much to Meg Lafoe for joining me. It's been enlightening to look not only behind the doors of Pixar, but your mind as a writer. For anyone listening to this show, please be sure to check out Meg's podcast, The Screenwriting Life, that is available on all major podcast players. Have an awesome day and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Red Carpet Rookies. To help us grow, please do subscribe and drop us a rating on the Apple Podcast Store on your iPhone or online if you're an Android user. And of course, any support via our Patreon page or merch is amazing. So if you'd like to help, please do head to redcarpetrookies.com and follow the links. If you'd like regular updates of what's going on, you can also follow Red Carpet Rookies on Instagram and Facebook or RC Rookies Pod on Twitter. Have a great day and we'll see you next time.